From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. Since the inauguration of President Trump, America's allies are unsure where they fit in in the administration's foreign policy. This anxiety is particularly strong in Asia, where countries like Japan have deep economic and strategic ties with the U.S. In order to better understand the hopes and concerns on both sides of the Pacific, we convened an international town hall shortly after President Trump took office. The event brought together an audience at Hawaii Public Radio with one in Tokyo in the studios of Virgin Earth, Inc., Our host, Beth Ann Kozlovich, is host of Hawaii Public Radio's Town Square, and she started off welcoming both audiences. Aloha Honolulu. And konnichiwa Tokyo. Konnichiwa. And those cell phones should be silenced, please. I want to encourage everyone to tweet any thoughts and questions using the hashtag TrumpAsiaPolicy. Again, that's TrumpAsiaPolicy. Now, before we get into our panel discussion on what lies ahead, we first turn to Tokyo-based reporter Lucy Kraft, who went out into the field to ask people in Japan about the the biggest policy concerns they have for the new administration. Tokyo's Shimbashi district is a favorite hangout for the business crowd, and around here, many profess optimism about one of their own in the Oval Office. Waiting for a seat in a noodle shop, this middle-aged customer said a businessman president could only be a good thing. Mr. Trump wants to make America strong, he said. He is a realist, so he will be a good president. Exports are the lifeblood of the Japanese economy, and businessmen here are trying to put a positive spin on the new president. But the deep-seated anxiety among citizens and their leaders in Japan is palpable. Across town at the gates of Japan's elite Tokyo University, the mood was somber. Law student Mari Sato said she and her friends were as distressed by Donald Trump's way of thinking as his policies. Since Trump was elected, most of us are fearful and disappointed, she said. The values America has long embraced, openness, getting along with other countries, suddenly have slammed into reverse. The sense of panic is shared within the highest levels of Japanese government, observers say. The shell shock is all the more pronounced, coming on the heels of what is widely seen as a high watermark in U.S.-Japan relations. Keio University professor Toshihiro Nakayama recently spoke of what he called an existential threat to Japan in an address to the Foreign Correspondents Club of Tokyo. I guess we took American internationalism too much for granted, now that Mr. Trump has won. It has always been at least after World War II, the bedrock of international order. And I would say that Japan was the country that benefited from uh, this existence of this world order the most. Tetsu Kotani, a senior fellow at the Japan Institute of International Affairs, says Japan and the U.S. have managed to convert their nearly 70-year-old alliance from its Cold War origins as a bulwark against communism into a closely integrated partnership, collaborating on everything from MIDI security to climate change. The U.S.-Japan alliance provided uh, huge strengths to the international order and the regional system. And I think uh, the alliance itself is now in the uh, best shape compared to the past. 
what policy wonks call an unusual synchronicity between Tokyo and Washington progressed despite the lack of personal chemistry between Shinzo Abe, a nationalist, and the liberal Barack Obama. The two leaders managed to find common ground and produce iconic moments like Obama's unprecedented and moving visit last year to Hiroshima. The United States and Japan forged not only an alliance, but a friendship that has won far more for our people than we could ever claim through war. This was followed by another first, Prime Minister Abe paying his respects to fallen U.S. soldiers at Pearl Harbor. In line with the U.S., he has guided Japan to take a more active role in the security alliance, with the Japanese self-defense forces becoming more tightly integrated with the U.S. military. The U.S. has pledged to uphold Japan's ownership of the Senkaku Islands, also claimed by China under Article 5 of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. But Trump's transactional approach to foreign affairs, Japanese say, risks instability and an arms race in Asia. One of the problems for Mr. Trump is he regards the alliance as an investment to make certain profit. But the alliance is actually an insurance, uh, not to lose. Sophia University professor Koichi Nakano said the worst-case scenario is that Trump bargains off U.S. alliances in order to reap trade concessions from China. There's no particular reason why the U.S. needs to continue to basically patrol the East China Sea, uh, the extent to which it does today. And so, you know, there could be a redrawing of the maritime map that says, well, you can take this half of the Pacific. We'll be happy with that. That is the sort of the confirmation of the worst nightmare of the policymakers on the Japanese side, uh, you know, in the recent decades. Another nightmare for the Japanese is President Trump's approach to North Korea, which has drastically ramped up its ballistic missile program in recent years. Japanese have become accustomed to rockets, believed to be missile tests in disguise, flying over their territory. President Trump's suggestion last year of sitting down with North Korean strongman Kim Jong-un over a burger comes off as dangerously naive to South Korean scholar Jaewon Lim. Lim, a China specialist who teaches at Aoyama Gakuin University, said the most important task for the Trump administration is to literally calm the waters, reaffirm the status quo will prevail in the East and South China Seas. Put a clear emphasis on maintaining the rule of law. That message or statement will kind of reassure many regional countries. You know, do not ruffle the feathers. American ships have been patrolling Asian waters nearly nonstop since shortly after the birth of the Republic. Then, as now, maintaining free access to Asian markets has been seen as a strategic American interest. Keeping the peace in Asia, in other words, has been seen as inextricably linked to American commercial interests and prosperity. An America disengaged from Asia could wreak havoc not just for the countries here, but around the world. In Tokyo, I'm Lucy Kraft for America Abroad. And our thanks to Lucy Kraft for that report. And now on to our panel discussion. Joining me here in Honolulu is Ralph Kossa. He's president of the Pacific Forum at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome. Thank you, Beth Ann. Good to be here. 
Also joining us is Charles Morrison. He's a senior fellow and former president at the East-West Center. Thanks for being here. Thank you. In Japan, we're pleased to say hello to Andrew Horvat. He teaches courses on Japan and East Asia at Josai International University. He's also the author of numerous books, including Japanese Beyond Words. Hi. Also with us in Tokyo is Professor Mieko Nakabayashi. She is a former member of the Japanese House of Representatives and currently a professor of international education at Japan's Wasaida University. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> now let's start, though, with a clip from our new president, Donald Trump. This is from his inauguration speech, talking about some of the challenges America faces abroad. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. So let's talk about this new policy, which Trump labeled America First. Charles Morrison, what do you make of it? Well, I actually think it's part of a, a long trend. You know, in, uh, at the end of World War II, the United States had a lot of legitimacy for its foreign policy, and that was because it was seen as acting in more than just the United States' own interest. It was seen as acting in the interest of building a, a new system, a system which would promote freer trade and which would um, protect security. And I think little by little, as the U.S. comparative power in the world has declined relatively, even though it's uh, in absolute terms it has been strong, uh, the U.S. outlook has become more and more like any other country. And so this is the extreme example of that. It's saying that our uh, interests are for the United States first, um, and it does not make a gesture to the importance of having your interest seen in light of the international system, which also protects the United States and supports the U.S. growth and well-being. Ralph Casa, one major concern, and something I know you consider closely, is the threat of nuclear weapons, the biggest threat being North Korea. We've seen Kim Jong-un ramping up rhetoric with talk of testing intercontinental missiles that could reach the U.S. How serious are they? Well, the North Koreans are very serious, and we should take them seriously. The idea about Trump and Kim Jong-un sitting down for a burger, I think, has been set pretty well aside by now. But we're still waiting to hear a clear-cut explanation of our nuclear policy going forward. Uh, you don't make nuclear policy in the United States via tweets. Uh, you do it via a nuclear posture review that the uh, is interagency and then has to be funded by the Congress. So uh, I think it's a little premature at this point to be talking about Trump wants an arms race and things like this. But clearly, uh, we need to take North Korea seriously. Uh, the Again, the tweet war where uh, he said it's not going to happen in regards to North Korea doing a test of an ICBM, it will happen. And it's, I think, very dangerous to be drawing red lines. As we're here in Honolulu, there are lots of people that are, are wondering how vulnerable Hawaii might be to North Korean missiles. Well, the missiles that North Korea have today have what's called a CEP, a circular area probability. If they aim at a point, 
with our missiles, if we aim at a point, we're going to hit within a foot or two of that point. Uh, the North Korean accuracy is measured somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 kilometers. Uh, that's 60-some miles. So if they were to shoot a missile at Hawaii, uh, I'd be more nervous if I was one of the whales uh, off of Maui than if I was sitting here in, in Honolulu. Our audience here in Honolulu would like to have some reaction from the audience there in Japan. How did you feel when Donald Trump was elected? <laughs> Yeah, we were also like, we were surprised at the result. And we cannot really predict the future because Mr. Trump says a lot of out of the box things. I mean, <laughs> um, so yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else want to comment? To me, it was, um, it was shocking. And I just give a thought on why it was so shocking to me because all my friends who uh, are in the States, in the United States, were not supportive of this new president. And all the information I was receiving from my friends was proving that he's not going to be the president. But the reality was totally different. Then I, I learned that I probably do not know the other side of the country, uh, people who are supportive about Trump. And that's something that I need to better understand what's going on in the United States. And that's my reaction. And a lot of here might agree with you, exactly. <laughs> Obama was very popular in Japan. What do you really make of Donald Trump? Will he be good for Japan? Raise your hand if you Raise your hand in the, yeah. in the audience. Uh, if, if you're asking me, well, I think that he'll be a kind of a wake-up call because he's not, he doesn't come across as a world leader. He comes across as a leader of an inward-looking America. And in a way, I think that's a good thing for Japan because in many ways, Japan has benefited from American leadership and therefore hasn't often stepped up to the plate. And so I think maybe in a kind of a, an ironic sense, uh, Japan and Japanese leaders and uh, Japanese policymakers and thinkers will have to see some kind of a positive role that Japan can fill internationally, which I think until now it's only done by paying lots of money to the United Nations and uh, when pressed, uh, sending a few troops who build roads in Iraq. Sorry about that, but that's, uh, I think it, there is a silver lining on the cloud in some ways. I think this would be a good time to ask our panel in Japan, what do you make of the risk from North Korea for Japan? You know, that's only 650 miles away. North Korea is one of the biggest threat to Japan and threat of refugees if the regime collapses. It's going to be great because of uh, the United States' help. Japan didn't need to even develop nuclear weapon to counter that kind of threat or increase Japanese defense budget. But after Mr. Trump was elected, Japanese military spending is under pressure to be increased because of the existing threat, visible threat from North Korea, and militarily or economically or refugee uh, type of thing. We are really worried about North Korea's development. Regarding the nuclear issue, as a candidate, 
Mr. Trump at one point supported the idea of Japan or South Korea obtaining nuclear weapons. I think you mentioned that before denying that statement. But there is this idea that he had brought up that other countries aren't pulling their weight for defense spending, be it in NATO or to stop North Korean aggression. Ralph, how would this translate into a new policy? And and does this sentiment concern you? It would concern me if we didn't have a counterbalance. The president didn't talk much about foreign policy during his inauguration address. He was clearly aiming it at his constituents. Uh, But he did talk about the need to strengthen old alliances. When he talked with President Park in Korea right after he was uh, elected, uh, he assured her that the U.S. was going to remain a strong, steadfast ally. Uh, We've heard a number of statements coming from General Mattis, uh, the new Secretary of Defense, again, reinforcing the alliances. Uh, So I'm not at the point yet where I'm going to start worrying about the alliances. Can I add to that? I was just thinking that uh, there is a peculiarity to the uh, alliance between Japan and the United States, and that is that there is not much public support for it, actually, in Japan. It's very different, I think, than, say, for example, uh, the situation between the United States and Germany, uh, where there is, uh, I think, a far greater appreciation for the stabilizing presence of the United States, whereas in Japan, it's very reluctant. It's, didn't you give us a peace clause in the Constitution? Why do you expect us to even contribute at all to the uh, support of the basis? And also, even the Japanese expression used to describe Japanese support for the basis as omoi yari yosan, meaning as an act of generosity from our part to you to support your basis in Japan. There is very little understanding that Japan has responsibilities and that these responsibilities for security must be borne equitably, not just between the United States and Japan, but also within Japan itself. So Trump's statements are very, very destabilizing. And and I completely agree with that. And he opens a Pandora's box here. All right. Let's take a question from our audience in Honolulu. Hello, I'm Ian Forsyth with the uh, United States Pacific Command. I'd like to go to the comments about the Spratly Islands and the Secretary of State's uh, designate statements about them. What are the chances, do you think, um, this is both for Ralph and Charles, that either China or the incoming administration took those statements at literal face value? And therefore, what are the chances that they'd be considered sort of a red line? Because they seem to be made with a certain amount of defiance. And what happens if China continues its activities in the Spratleys? Is the new administration now put itself on the hook to have to really do something unequivocally, unequivocal and beyond what's been done before? I think, first of all, uh, red lines are very dangerous. Uh, this is If you interpreted Trump's tweet about the North Korean missile launch, it won't happen as a red line, uh, then... Uh, we're going to have to respond to it. If if you take uh, Rex Tillerson's comments about we shouldn't allow the Chinese to go to these islands as a as a red line, uh, then uh, you're either going to start a war or you're going to be seen as a paper tiger. Far as I know, and you would probably know better than me, PACOM hasn't been given any orders to start blockading the islands in the South China Sea. Uh, when that happens, uh, then I will take those tweets and, and et cetera seriously. Uh, uh, until then, I'm perfectly prepared uh, tomorrow to hear the press secretary say, oh, he never said that, or no, that's not what he meant. Uh, and then we'll just sort of, you know, 
go on and on. Who are you going to believe, me or your own ears? Yeah, I think what's, uh, what's disturbing is that statements were made. To some extent, they're off-the-cuff statements, but they're statements that are made without professional advice. And that's one thing to do when you're a president-elect or when you're a designated secretary of state. If you are making those statements as a secretary of state, uh, it would be a far more serious uh, situation. And it would call into question the U.S. respect for the rule-based order, because that would not be following the rules. I want to bring into this conversation Grace Cheng, who is professor of political science at Hawaii Pacific University. In your opinion, what does Trump's style of leadership bring to the table in terms of advancing American interests with China, and what parts concern you particularly about what uh, some people believe could be a military showdown? Well, with the Chinese leadership, there is much more continuity than with the American leadership with new presidents every four or eight years. But as Charles Morrison said, you know, there has always been sort of an American vision of internationalism. So there's a bit of predictability to that. And so with the Trump administration coming in, you know, China, like other countries, I think, are waiting to see whether his actions will match his rhetoric or if he's going to settle in and understand kind of the situation a little bit more clearly and, and listen to various advisors. But that said, I mean, there, in China also, what Trump has said and what Secretary of, of, of State designate uh, Rex Tillerson has said about, you know, patrolling and deny access to the uh, South China Sea's islands that China's built uh, uh, some installations on. I think these worry China who who see these kinds of territorial claims really unproblematically in the South China Seas as well as in the East China Sea, in, in, including Senkaku Island. So I think any kind of American military buildup in the area, even if the U.S. doesn't actually go and physically try to deny Chinese access to, to the islands in the South China Seas, it's seen as a unwarranted American interference in basically how China would like to treat us as, as bilateral uh, uh, disagreements that they want to work out with their neighbors uh, on a bilateral basis. Thank you. Mr. Trump has also called into question the long-standing one-China policy, which is to deal with one Chinese government and not speak separately with Taiwanese leaders. What could be the impact of changing this policy? And I'm going to ask both Charles and Ralph to answer. Charles, you want to go first? Uh, well, I, I, I don't think uh, there's a plan to change the policy. It depends on what you, what you think is the content of the one-China policy. And if it means that you're recognizing the mainland government as the Chinese government and you're not recognizing Taiwan, that is, that's my understanding of the policy. But does that policy mean that a president-elect can't talk to a president in Taiwan? That's uh, another issue. So Chinese may see that as a derogation from the one-China policy, but I'm not sure that many Americans would see it that way. Thank you. Ralph? I think we have to be very careful on how we approach that issue. It's certainly a, quote, core interest of the Chinese, and we have to understand that. I would agree with Charles that our relationship with Taiwan is constantly redefined. The Chinese have made it very clear that this is a very sensitive issue. Uh, but I think the Chinese have been very smart so far in dealing with the with the Trump administration, which is to uh, not overreact to things that he's saying. Let's wait and sort of see how this plays out into policy. Uh, they're actually uh, they may be giving us some good advice. We might want to try not to overreact to every tweet and wait and see how much of this actually turns into uh, new laws and, and new uh, official policy, because none of that has 
has yet. But uh, the one China issue is a very sensitive issue. And as Charles said, everyone believes in one China, but everyone has a different definition of what that means and who it applies to. Uh, So I think it's somewhere where you have to tread carefully. We're going to leave it there for the moment. When we come back, we're going to take a look at President Trump's business background and his plans to change the trade and economic relationship America has with its partners in Asia. That's coming up in just a minute. You're listening to Asia Policy Under Trump, a Honolulu, Tokyo town hall on America Abroad. That's Beth Ann Kozlovich, executive producer for talk shows at Hawaii Public Radio, as well as host of the station's public affairs program, Town Square. Our town hall discussion was recorded shortly after Donald Trump's inauguration, but the online conversation continues. If you'd like to weigh in, find us on Facebook or on our website at PRI.org. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. On today's program, we're listening to our Honolulu, Tokyo Town Hall, recorded shortly after President Trump's inauguration. Our panelists in Hawaii are Ralph Kassa, president of Pacific Forum CSIS, Charles Morrison, senior fellow and former president of the East-West Center, and in Tokyo, Andrew Horvat, who teaches courses on Japan at Josai International University, as well as Mieko Nakabayashi, a professor of international affairs at Japan's Waseda University. Let's go back to our host, Beth Ann Kozlovich, executive producer for talk shows at Hawaii Public Radio. Hello again to our audiences in Tokyo and here in Honolulu. Let's start this part of the discussion with another clip. One of the first things Mr. Trump has done as president is to sign an executive order withdrawing the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Let's hear White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer. This executive action ushers in a new era of U.S. trade policy in which the Trump administration will pursue bilateral trade opportunities with allies around the globe. This is a strong signal that the Trump administration wants free and fair trade throughout the world. Charles, let's get into the TPP. Why are multilateral trade agreements so disliked versus bilateral ones? Well, I think uh, a lot of people who don't like the multilateral ones also don't like many of the bilateral ones. So the bilateral one with Korea had a great deal of trouble getting passed by the Congress. But the argument that this new administration has made is that multilateral agreements go down to the lowest common denominator. And so we get less high standards with uh, multilateral agreements. The problem with that is that bilateral agreements aren't nearly as visible. And so if you're trying to establish new international rules, there are many new areas in trade then you need a a real coalition of powerful economies to do that. And TPP was that uh, coalition. And without TPP, you really uh, have lost your ability, I think, to provide leadership in the global system, which was not being provided by the World Trade Organization. Ralph, does pulling out of the TPP help the U.S. in the long run? No, I don't don't think so. I mean, first I would say of all the people in the world that I would not change jobs with, Sean Spicer would be at the very top of that list right now. I, I, my sympathy goes to him. You know, the big headlines are U.S. seeds leadership and economics in Asia to China. I'm not totally comfortable with the argument, and President Obama made the same argument. You know, the U.S. makes the rules or China's going to make the rules. Well, the rules, you know, sort of make themselves in many respects, and they evolve. Uh, I think 
it's more in our interest. There was both a security and an economic dimension to the TPP, but it also symbolized a U.S. leadership role that has been there since the end of the World War II. And that's being thrown into question, and I can't see how that makes us great again or makes us uh, more secure. Now, President Trump has said, you know, he wants to do bilateral instead. Uh, And, of course, 80-some percent of TPP was the U.S. and Japanese economies. Is it possible? Are there, you know, alternatives? Can the U.S. and Japan uh, essentially carve out our portion of the TPP, move forward with that, and then use that to sort of build on? And someone joked, eventually we'll have a Trump-Pacific partnership rather than a trans-Pacific partnership, and then he'll accept it because it's under his name. I I don't know. And I don't know how receptive the Japanese would be to doing a, a bilateral or how easy that might be. All right, let's take a question from our audience in Japan. Please raise your hand so we can see who you are and pass you a mic. There you go. Thank you. I'm Kazuhira Saito. I'm a junior at Kyushu University, and I'm currently an executive committee member of Japan-America Student Conference. And my question is about TPP and um, about the withdrawal of the U.S. from TPP. Now, like, Australia is taking kind of leadership to like continue TPP without the U.S., but I, my question is: Should Japan like stick on TPP, and like can Japan like change his mind to you know come back to the TPP or something? So, Mieko, thank you very much for uh, your question. Uh, if you think that TPP is not just a trade uh, agreement, but also an international uh, security matter, then TPP is very vital. And uh, renegotiating is almost uh, uh, impossible because even the past negotiation was so tough and there are so many uh, industries uh, involved in many countries. Uh, TPP was one of the tools to have an alliance with developed and democratic uh, nations. And it might have had some kind of pressure on China to somehow change the world order in terms of uh, international trade. But because of the TPP being collapsed, maybe China has more voice to include other countries in Asia and the nation to lead uh, this international uh, norm. And uh, maybe our voice cannot be heard that much because of the collapse of TPP. The TPP was also controversial in Japan. Lots of farmers complained, and even now, after Mr. Trump announced he would terminate it, people had a joy <laughs> because of that. Uh, that proves that there are some stronger positions, too, in Japan. But the reason that the United States, Japan, and other countries tried to come up with some kind of conclusion with that negotiation was our international order, our security, our alliance, our stability in Asia is so important. So it is a trade negotiation. But at the same time, it is a national security matter to protect our value, freedom, and democracy. Professor Chang, as you're here, we're, we're commenting about where we are with the, the TPP, what that means for the U.S., and also for our love of cheap goods. <laughs> I think 
Trump's position that he would bring American jobs back, in part by investing in more infrastructure development in the country, that seems reasonable. But as far as, you know, entering into these kinds of new, perhaps triggering some new trade wars, um, like with the kinds of assertions that the uh, imbalance of trade the U.S. has with Japan and China are very unfair and that he's going to, especially in China's case, very concerned about the high, I think, 40-some percent tariffs he was threatening to to apply. As far as the charge that a lot of jobs have been taken away from uh, Americans because they've gone to China, I think that might be a bit difficult to bring some of those jobs back because they are not, you know, the kind of jobs that would probably provide enough income for Americans. And then, you know, as far as our access to the goods that have been coming from the outside, uh, that would raise consumer prices. So it is, I think it is a little bit of a wonder how, how he might adjust his policy position on that. You bring up tariffs. I want to ask Charles, what would you see as being put the potential effect of having the kind of tariffs that President Trump is talking about imposing? Well, the the effect would be uh, devastating, but it won't happen. You know, it, these economies are so integrated that you cannot impose that kind of a tariff without hurting yourself a great deal. We tried it with the Japanese. We uh, finally identified a product that we thought would, would hurt them and not hurt us too much, and it was high-end Nissan cars, and the dealers all went crazy. So it didn't last very long, but it just shows you how uh, difficult it is. All right, let's take a question from our audience in Honolulu, way there in the back. Chris Haig. It's important to look at President Trump as a businessman, strategic businessman, and understand that if you look at the last 30 years of government relationships with business, that Japan was really a leader in advancing good, positive government relationships to support successful business. China also followed that model. So to that extent, the United States is just catching up with Japan and China. Could you comment on that history of government with business relations? Ralph? I I think there's certainly different management styles to be the head of a, you know, to be a businessman or to be a, a politician. And there are also, I think, some detriments in in both cases. I think that clearly enough American people felt that we needed a dramatic change, uh, felt that they weren't being listened to, uh, that we now have a new administration and it's being run by a businessman. But I, what bothers me quite, quite honestly is the presidency of the United States is not a place for on-the-job training. And uh, I have no problem with businessmen going into some of the secretary positions and all of that because I think they bring a new mentality and, and that might be useful. We have had, you know, George W. Bush was at least a businessman as well as having political leadership. One of the things uh, that concerns me about Mr. Trump is in a business environment, uh, and we saw this in the Bush administration to some respect. Uh, You hire people who give sort of alternate views and they compete against one another. Uh, And and that may be useful in a business in order to, you know, make the product better. Uh, When you're running a country uh, where signaling is important and messaging is important, if you have the Secretary of State saying one thing and the Secretary of Defense saying another thing and the President saying something else and the National Security Advisor saying something else, 
this isn't management, uh, and it's certainly not leadership, and it leads potentially leads to chaos. I want to make sure we get questions coming to us from our audience there in Tokyo. Yes, please. Yes. Um, my name is Yoko Yamamoto, and I'd like to uh, ask questions about how you perceive the reaction of Toyota Corporation to what uh, Trump has tweeted. Uh, we kind of know that it's reasonable to assume that the announced plan was something that's been already planned for a while. But I think the timing has made some kind of strong message. And I would like to know what you thought about that yes. action. Actually, Toyota immediately announced that the company is going to invest more than one trillion yen into the United States. Uh, although they are not stopping building a factory in Mexico because their plan was uh, moving a factory from Canada to Mexico. And it didn't anyway initially uh, or even a little bit affect American workers. But after being tweeted, Toyota decided to invest in the United States and create more uh, work in the United States. I somehow suspected that it was not because of just tweeting itself. In Washington, I thought there are lots of lots of um, uh, lobbying going on. And uh, there are three auto uh, industries, three big three, um, trying to expand their business, of course, that is natural. And they approached Mr. Trump and had some kind of deals. And Toyota sensed it and wanted to prevent that kind of movement going further. And they reacted very quickly. So if Toyota reacted to the tweeting, it's almost laughable. But actually, it is more serious and very careful move, I thought. Well, uh, I think that this is an, an example of Japanese reacting to being misunderstood. So, in other words, most Japanese know that, uh, in fact, Japanese makers produce an enormous number of vehicles in the United States. And, in fact, now they produce far more vehicles in the United States, sold in the United States, than they are exporting from Japan. So they understand that this is an irrational tweet. But, however, they deal with it in a way that uh, will get uh, Japan the best possible uh, PR mileage. You've been listening to U.S. Asia Policy under Trump, a Honolulu Tokyo Town Hall on America Abroad. Now we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, more on how Trump policies may change our relationships in Asia right after this short break. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand, and we're listening to our Honolulu Tokyo Town Hall recorded shortly after President Trump's inauguration. Our panelists in Hawaii are Ralph Casa, president of Pacific Forum CSIS, Charles Morrison, senior fellow and former president of the East-West Center. And in Tokyo, we're joined by Andrew Horvat, who teaches courses on Japan at Josai International University, as well as Miyako Nakabayashi, a professor of international affairs at Japan's Waseda University. Before we jump back into the discussion, some quick background on some of the questions from our audience. There's one question you'll hear about Chinese President Xi Jinping's comments at the World Economic Forum on January 17th, in which he advocated for globalization. Also, we want to draw your attention to two acronyms talked about in this section. First, 
ASEAN, that's the Association of Southeast Asian States. It was set up to promote economic growth and peace between countries in the region. The other is APEC, which stands for Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. That's another alliance with similar goals. Okay, that's all the housekeeping for now. Let's turn back to our host, Beth Ann Kozlovich of Hawaii Public Radio. This last part of the conversation explored the overall state of the U.S. relationship with Japan and Asia. I want to talk to you about how Americans are viewed in Japan. I want to hear both from Mieko and from Andrew. (laughs) Yes, we are wondering how serious Mr. Trump's administration is trying to deal with international order, particularly the relationship with Japan. He seems to be very smart, but he is bringing lots of numbers, data, statistics that are not quite understandable and true. Because he's a smart person, uh, we are starting to say that uh, he's intentionally doing that so that allies and negotiators have to somehow correct the numbers first. And then Mr. Trump will have an advantage to start negotiating something. But we have to see. So far, we are not thinking that what he is saying is not all that realistic. Andrew, I'd like to hear from you, too. I think that there is a um, tendency in Japan for Japanese people, many, to think that they are really not very well understood to begin with. So having another uh, American president who doesn't understand Japan isn't exactly shocking most Japanese, if you know what I mean. Thank you. (laughs) Well, the audience here is laughing, and I think they're agreeing with you. All right, let's take a question from our audience in Honolulu. Aloha. My name is Pia Mazinga. Question. As we were worried about Donald Trump on the opposite side of the world, they were having the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, and Xi Jinping set forth uh, three primary reasons of why our economy was doing well. How can we speak on it? And then uh, Donald Trump just appointed Terry Bradstead, who knows Xi Jinping personally for over 30 years. How do you think that relationship is going to affect trade? I think that was a good choice for uh, Ambassador. But I think the real issue is U.S.-China relations, Not no matter who became president. That's the global issue that um, really will set the tone for this century. And I'm fairly optimistic about it in the long run because I see an awful lot of ways that we uh, interact and cooperate with each other. I don't see China at the moment as being a competitor. Now, Xi Jinping laid out a program that looked to some Americans like it was trying to exploit the future weaknesses of the United States and and make China the great leader of the world. But, you know, to be a leader of the world, you can't be engaged in petty disputes with neighbor countries. You have to have the human resource base. But most of all, you need to have an outlook that is a global outlook and a global vision and something that looks more than just China exercising power. What I'm worried about is is the U.S. having less of those attributes. And so the key challenge, I think, beyond this administration will be U.S. and China working together in a leadership capability, not to rule the world, but to be a backbone for a a global system, which I hope will be a rules-based system. Ralph? 
Yeah, I would, I would agree with Charles and just add to it. I was in, in China in November right after the elections, and uh, our Chinese interlocutors were lecturing us on the importance of environmental uh, security and uh, free trade. And I said, God, I, I feel like the world's been stood on its head. I mean, all the things that we used to lecture them on, they're now lecturing us on. And we have a number of, of junior researchers at, at Pacific Forum, and one of them came in to me yesterday and said she wanted to do a a study comparing uh, Xi's Davos speech with President Trump's inauguration address. And I said, uh, that's, that's interesting. Uh, it's, it's sort of mixing apples and oranges. Uh, but what I think would be really interesting, if you compared Xi's Davos speech to what Xi is doing, is China really embracing free markets, or is it still propping up state-owned enterprises and doing uh, all of the things that are creating uh, long headaches for China in, uh, in the long run? All right, let's take a question from our audience in Honolulu. Hello, uh, my name is Niyan, and I am from Myanmar. I have a question about the U.S.-ASEAN relation. So as you know, the ASEAN was an important part during the Obama BB to Asia policy. Do you think... Uh, uh, that relation could be changed under President Trump. Uh, how important ASEAN would be in the new administration? You know, I don't think ASEAN will get the kind of attention it got under Obama. Obama had a special interest partly because he'd lived in Indonesia at a, in his young life. And so programs like the Young Leaders Program for Southeast Asians, the YCLE program, they may not continue under this administration. But the thing that is another concern is that ASEAN is now believes that American officials, senior officials, should show up for ASEAN uh, meetings. We saw that sometimes under the Bush administration, the Secretary of State didn't show up. I'm not sure whether Trump will show up for East Asia summits or APEC meetings. Uh, We just have to see. But that would be uh, very symbolic, I think, to many Asians of an erosion of U.S. interest in the region. I wish we had time for more questions, but we're going to wrap it up. But before we go, I want to check in with all of our panelists for their final thoughts on this discussion. And with that, I'll also ask you to give your opinion on what actions by the Trump administration you think will be the clearest indication of where we're heading, at least in the months, perhaps in the years ahead. And we'll start with our friends in Japan. Well, I'll be the last person to try to uh, get into uh, uh, President Trump's head. I can't possibly think of what uh, he will do, and I'm sure that whatever he will try to do is beyond most of our imaginations. At the same time, Trump is definitely a game changer. And therefore, if you look at a, a from a positive point of view, I think that this will be a wake-up call for Japan to take a much more serious and much more realistic look at becoming a more more like a, a real country, a real leader. I don't mean you know spending an enormous amount of money on defense, but in trying to somehow create a a message to the rest of the world that will resonate better with neighbors and with allies. Um, I, I think there is a, a silver lining to the cloud. Miyako? Yes. The world is nervously watching uh, Mr. Trump's uh, new administration. And this is a great wake-up call to Japan and other nations. But at the same time, this seems to be a wake-up call to the United States, people over there. And income gap and people left behind 
are threatened, and we understand that. This is, uh, at the same time, a internal struggle of the United States. So I think um, Mr. Trump would learn beyond the internal uh, thing and try to somehow see this world as a leader and um, uh, make this world uh, even more peaceful. And Japan, I think, is trying to cooperate with the United States uh, to this uh, region in the world, a better place. Uh, Dialogue of, in a sense, U.S. and Japan is very important for this region. And um, my hope is that new President Trump would learn things very quickly because time is limited. And I'd like to ask Charles Morrison to give us his final thoughts. Well, I do think uh, every few decades of world history, we go through learning lessons. Um, we've, uh, it's not just Donald Trump himself, but it's really American society and how they're seeing the world now. And the Great Depression and World War II taught us some lessons. But I have a feeling the, uh, the Trump period will be a period of reaffirming old lessons or else learning about something new that, um, that we didn't anticipate. As somebody who's specially interested in Asia, I see Asia as uh, by far the most important part of the world to the United States. Um, most population, it's uh, certainly the rising area of the world. And so I'll be looking for clues as to whether this administration will have an Asia policy and what that will look like. Thank you. Ralph Kossa. Well, I think that uh, there's a great opportunity here, not just for us to sort of redefine the U.S.-Japan relationship, but for Mr. Abe uh, to become the statesman that many people believe that he's capable of and is desirous of. Uh, and it's an opportunity now for Japan to step forward. So I'm, I see that as one of the, one of the positives uh, while we're hoping for the best uh, elsewise. That'll do it for U.S.-Asia policy under Trump. This has been a co-production of America Abroad and Hawaii Public Radio. Thanks to our Honolulu panelists, Ralph Kossa from Pacific Forum CSIS and Charles Morrison for the East-West Center. And in Tokyo, many thanks to Andrew Horvat of Josai International University and Mieko Nakabayashi of Waseda University. And a very big mahalo to our audiences here in Honolulu and in Tokyo. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. Thanks again, everyone. And that concludes our town hall discussion, which was recorded shortly after Donald Trump's inauguration. The conversation continues online at PRI.org. This Hour of America Abroad was written, edited, and produced by Rob Sachs. Additional production help from Jonna McCone and Lucy Kraft. Audio engineering support was provided by Flan Williams, Hawaii Public Radio's Jason Taglianetti, and Mario Saavedra at KCRW in Santa Monica. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook, or you can visit our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI. 
Public Radio International.